Lord Hesseltine, welcome to Tell a Friend. Thank you. Now, firstly, let's begin by just asking you, how have you been doing over these turbulent past months? Well, I feel a, a deep sense of guilt in a sense, because uh, I'm locked down here in uh, my home with my wife and uh, staff. And uh, it, the weather has been extraordinarily kind. And as a very keen gardener, I have had the opportunity to devote myself to my garden in a way that I haven't in my adult life. Uh, but the guilt, of course, is that I'm fully aware that there are people locked down and I keep thinking of the 15th floor of a tenement block and three young children with parents. And that's a very different set of circumstances. So um, I think the fact of the matter is that the, the lockdown process has, of course, affected all sorts of people in many different ways. Um, I'm retired, and so my economic situation isn't dependent on my having a job. Uh, but what about people who who have the anxieties of either losing their job or losing large parts of it? It's awful. Um, so it, it's very much uh, horses for courses. Uh, some people, uh, and, and I've talked to many people of my generation have had a rather enjoyable period. Many people have had a very different experience and one must not forget that. Now, as you mentioned there, a lot of people have struggled over these uh, past few months whilst we've been dealing with the pandemic. But I wanted to ask you, what has been your assessment of the government's handling of this pandemic? Well, I'll tell you what I think. I'm sitting here in my home I have no medical knowledge, I have no briefing, uh, and uh, therefore I'm very reluctant to join the sort of chorus of complaints that always arises when anything uh, of difficulty occurs. There are always people around, in my experience, who say, oh yes, of course, I told them so, if only they'd listened. Uh, well, I'm not prepared to join that brigade. I think that this is a nightmarish political situation. And I think that probably there's no right solution because what the government is having to do is balance the very proper concern for people's health with the damage that economic depression and uh, recession creates. And the two things are interwoven. Putting the emphasis on COVID, how can anyone criticize that, means that all sorts of people are not getting the treatment that they would like uh, because hospitals are so pressed, A&E are so pressed, uh, that there are great queues building up in many other medical concerns. Uh, but equally, locking people up, locking down for their own safety, creates another set of medical problems. And many companies are providing counseling to try and help their employees. So it, it, this is a nightmarish political balancing exercise. And I have got absolutely no grounds for thinking that if I'd been 
still in the forefront of government, that I would have got the judgments any better than this government. Uh, looking across the world, uh, it's not easy to say that anyone's found the right solution. Well, we all know what the right solution is. It's the vaccine. And the quicker they get it, the better. Um, but uh, I'm not prepared to join the criticism of the way the government is handling COVID. Now, one of the greatest criticisms that was placed on the government was when the senior advisor, Dominic Cummings, was reported as having broken lockdown measures, <clears throat> despite being a senior government advisor. Now, when you saw the headlines of him breaking lockdown rules, do you think he should have been let go? Well, I'm not very impressed with the way that was handled. Um, uh, but again, it's a, uh, in the context of things, it's a pretty small issue. A lot of people have um, been speaking about the way that Dominic Cummings has been a divisive figure, both for the party, but also nationally. Why do you think the Prime Minister is so reluctant to let go of his senior advisor? Well, I, I don't know the relationship between the two. I myself don't think that Dominic Cummings is right about many of the judgments that are attributed to him. He's quite wrong, in my view, about his criticism of the British Civil Service, which I hold in very high regard. Um, and I've not seen any evidence that he has any understanding of what economic measures need to be taken in order to help the double whammy of Brexit and COVID. I myself am quite clear that we need uh, a much more bottoms-up approach uh, to both those sides of the issue. And I don't see any sign in government, whether it's a recent statement by the Chancellor or by the Prime Minister or by the series of announcements that they keep making that they've learned any of the lessons of um, um, my experience, which is that we usually, whenever we're facing a crisis of economic concern, we use Whitehall to design some measures and then impose them on the local people. I think that's quite wrong. I think we want a much more bottoms-up approach because people who live in the great cities and run the great cities or in charge of the universities in the great cities, public and private sector leaders and employees, they know better how we should be responding. Uh, but actually what I see the government doing is what governments always do, which is to ask the Minister of Transport to, to come up with some ideas, the Minister of Housing to come up, the Education Department to come up with ideas. There's no coordination and there's no attempt to relate those problems to the circumstances that actually exist in our great cities. That needs to mobilise the leadership of the local conurbation mayors, and I don't see that happening. Now, moving on to the so-called migrant crisis that is going on right now, we saw the Home Secretary speak out against migrants crossing the English Channel, and she has said that she's looking for tougher ways to prevent them crossing over. Now, immigration has been a point of contention within conservative politics 
for decades now. But do you believe that this current government is going about it the right way? Well, that is a huge question. And it's, again, uh, one of those extraordinarily stretching political dilemmas which face governments all over the world. Uh, throughout history, migration has been the source of huge tension in every country. Uh, I have been a, a critic in my political lifetime of the racial tensions that immigration created in this country. And in the 1950s, I was engaged in both the hospitality industries and the employment uh, industry. And I saw what was happening. Uh, I was the first conservative to criticize Enoch Powell in 1968, I think it was. And I defied my party whip over the conservative opposition to the race relations legislation of, uh, that I think Jim Callaghan, the Labour Home Secretary, was responsible for. Um, I defied my party over the Kenyan Asian uh, decisions. And I became deeply involved in the inner city stress of the riots of the 1980s and made one of the most important speeches of my career to the Conservative Conference of 1981. So I have had a deep experience in all of these issues, and they're deeply worrying. They always have been. Um, I, I think that the difficulty with the immigrant situation today, largely as it is focused on the channel crossings, is that no one has found an effective way to police the situation. Um, I, I, I don't believe that you can just turn back the boats, which would inevitably lead to drowning and the public outcry, which would make that uh, quite unacceptable and quite rightly so. Um, there's no doubt that there is a big criminal conspiracy at work to bring people across the channel. Um, and wherever there's money to be made, there will be criminals. The, the whole problem of immigration and migration across the world has led to the most appalling circumstances in many countries. Um, a lot of the migration is caused by those economic circumstances, born as they often are, of, uh, the, the war tensions and the tribal problems that exist in so many countries. So it, it, it's, it, there really aren't simple answers to any of these questions. You, it, it, they're historic in their significance and in their, uh, the, 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 their incidents. And you have to make up your mind which side of the argument you're on. And in my language, I know exactly where I am, that I am wholly opposed to any discrimination on grounds of color, class, and creed.
that's where I've been all my life. That's where I believe the Conservative Party is and should be. Now, I'm sure many people will agree with you that immigration is not an easy topic to deal with, as we've seen by how it's continued throughout the decades. But with uh, incidents such as the Windrush scandal, and now you have the rhetoric that's coming out of the government right now about the current migrant crisis, do you believe the hostile environment will ever end? Well, I think that there, there is a, a positive way of looking at this situation. Um, the, the tolerance in this country towards the immigrant communities has, I think, been on balance extremely commendable. Um, if you look at our communities today, they have absorbed very large numbers of people from many different races, from many different parts of the country. And curiously enough, where the uh, um, levels of immigration have been the highest, the accord locally has been some of the best. I, mean, I, I actually took my wife this week to see a doctor in, in London. And so one was able to see the London of today as it is. And the mix, the racial, racial mix was, was everywhere to be seen. And there was, it was just accepted. It was part of the, the way it is. Um, so that's extremely encouraging. But that's not to say that there are not some parts of the country or some people or some places where practice is nothing like as acceptable as it should be. And there will be some politicians who will exploit that. Um, you, you can't legislate it away. You can use the forces of the law, and you should, to do your best. But human nature is not a perfect formulation. Now, as you mentioned just earlier, when you were serving as Environment Secretary, we saw the 1981 Brixton and Toxa riots. Yeah. And a lot of the situations that led to those riots are the situations that led to the Black Lives Matter movement, which resurged this summer. And documents from the time state that you were horrified by police conduct at the time. And you said, quote, there is undoubtedly a serious breakdown of confidence between a great part of the population in the area and the police. And when you look at the conditions that led to this summer's Black Lives Matter movement, do you believe Britain has developed in any way in regards to race relations? Oh, yes. Transformed um, from the, the 1981 situation that I remember. Um, undoubtedly transformed. But that doesn't mean to say that the present situation is as good as it could be. Um, but, but undoubtedly, um, a lot of the hesitancy and the doubt and the bitterness uh, has disappeared as, as, frankly, the immigrants have proved so valuable a part of our community, uh, have made increasingly successes of their new homes. Um, and, um, yeah, no, there's no doubt at all there's been a, a, a very significant improvement. 
Now, did you support the protesters who were protesting uh, at the Black Lives Matter protests? Well, of course, I would always support people who are against racial prejudice. But um, I, I, I've taken a slightly different view that all lives matter. Of course, black lives matter, but who's to say that other lives don't matter? Why single out one or the other? Um, and, and if you, I think if you start probing into this, what is black and what is white? The world is full of a huge range of different colored people, depending on all sorts of historic backgrounds. So I've not myself been wholly persuaded that trying to divide the world into black and white, which is simply not realistic, uh, is a solution to this hugely difficult issue. I mean, you know, I've witnessed from afar tribal bitterness in Africa between groups of people who are both black. And, but the bitterness and the things that they've done to each other are horrific. Uh, I went to Papua New Guinea, which simply because of its geography has very steep valleys and very high mountains and therefore one of the largest collections of different languages in the world because there's no communication historically between the tribes and so they fight each other uh, who is to say which tribe is right who is right and which tribe is wrong uh, so these are not issues that that are born in britain or born in america these are issues that are found in every part of the world, in every racial group. Um, uh, and um, so whilst there have been incidents and, and the uh, appalling treatment of that particular black guy who the police had the knee on his throat was, was just appalling, you can't qualify the language. But um, the idea that somehow black lives matter as opposed to everybody's lives matter is something that is a legitimate matter for discussion. What I've heard um, on this debate is that, and something that I myself agree with, whilst all lives do matter, the reason for um, emphasizing that black lives matter is the fact that, and I think we can agree, the experience of a black person living in the West, well, in this world in general, is starkly different to the experience of a white person. I mean, when you look at stop and search, police brutality, institutional racism, do you, do you concede that the experience is completely different? I think it's a perfectly fair set of questions to ask, but define black for me. By saying Black Lives Matter, what the movement are doing? Define black for me. Define what black. Is, yes, well, what I'm is... Speaking in terms of uh, racial signifiers. So when someone sees me, they don't, they initially see my color. And that does lead to subconscious biases. But you put, supposing you were Japanese, or Chinese, or Indian, 
or Iranian or Iraqi, where would you put all of them in the um, categorization? And if you were in parts of England, where would you put the Poles or the Romanians who suffer the same sort of gut instinct, racial prejudice? So I'm, I'm just... Uh, <laughs> We've, we've seen that. When I was at Oxford, I, I read philosophy, and one of the papers was about logical positivism, and it was all about the meaning of words. Now, an awful lot of people would say, look, this is pedantry, this is preposterous, to try and turn this conversation into a philosophical divide. Um, black is black, white is white. But what we were taught, was to look at the precision of the meaning of words. And whilst I think you and I agree that racial intolerance and prejudice is utterly unacceptable, the, the question that one then has to ask is, to what extent can you divide the world into just a black and white? situation and i don't think you can you see but if we look at britain for example the hostility towards eastern europeans has been appalling uh, in recent years the hostility towards i'm agreeing with you yes. towards muslims but with the black lives matter movement we have seen that whilst um, non-white communities are the subject to oppression the black community faces it particularly hard. So we see in America and we see here, stop and search measures being used disproportionately against the black community. Yes, I, I, think, I think that, that, that you're right about that. But um, I, I, my problem is trying to get you to um, recognize that, that racial prejudice is not something that applies just to black people. Um, it applies to human anxiety about difference. And anyone who isn't part of your tribe, my tribe, is something to be regarded with some suspicion. I mean, ludicrously, there are people who don't like the Scots or who sneer at my home country, Wales. Ludicrous, I use the word quite deliberately, but there are such people. And uh, as I said to you, there are many parts of the world where the racial prejudices are between black tribe and black tribe. So uh, I, I have to try, to, in thinking my way through these issues, to try to see where the simplistic division of black and white takes you and whether it solves the problems. And I'm afraid it doesn't, in my view. That doesn't mean to say you're in any way tolerant of racial prejudice of any sort, because I'm not. Now, if we move away from semantics and uh, the language around the movement, do you believe that Britain is systemically racist? No. It, the evidence is strongly the other way. So when you look at institutions such as the Metropolitan Police, you don't see institutional racism at play? 
uh, well, by institutional racism, you would, you would be saying to me that as an institution, there is a racialist element, presumably accepted by the institution. Well, I reject that. If you were to say to me, do you mean that there are black, uh, sorry, there are white policemen who hold unacceptable racial prejudices? I say, yes, there will, there will be. Um, because that is the nature of human beings. There are human beings of whom I strongly disapprove. Um, uh, but it, the idea that the Metropolitan Police is institutionally racist, I would reject absolutely. I think if my own, I, I never served as Home Secretary, so I don't have a personal knowledge, but my guess is that if you went to the Metropolitan Police and you said, do you want to recruit people from the uh, ethnic communities? I didn't use the word black, I used the word ethnic communities. They would fall over themselves for recruits. And I think what, a legitimate question that has to be asked is to what extent some of the ethnic communities are hesitant to join the police force. Now, uh, there are many who have joined and, and are making their way up the ladders of promotion, and that's all to be welcomed and admired. But should more of some of the more uh, racially prejudiced groups join the police force? Well, my answer is yes, they should. So when we look at black people being stopped and searched, when we look at racial profiling, would you say then, then that's just the bad apple analogy? Would you say that that's just a coincidence or would you accept that there is an institutional bias running throughout the police? No, I, I wouldn't accept the institutional bias. I would be happy to look at the, the bad apple example. I think your, your choice is, is, is appropriate. Um, but, you know, let, let, let me because we're being very frank and honest, and that's very appropriate in these difficult issues. But let me go back to the Liverpool experience. Now, there's not the slightest doubt at all that the, the relationships between the black Toxteth community and the police were very bad. But there is no doubt at all that within the Toxteth community at that time, there was a very serious criminal element. Uh, and I got to know quite a bit about it. And it was a very nasty situation where uh, the community was very much frightened of um, various people who had gained an ascendancy on the community, which was thoroughly undesirable. These people had control over the drugs, control over the prostitutes and, and other crime elements. Now. Um, the police were left with the very difficult situation of how to cope with this. And what would happen is that over their communication systems would come a message, uh, incident in the street, black guy running. And they, if you are three or four hundred meters away and you get this message, you see a black guy running and you stop. If he hadn't been a black guy, 
probably it would have been tall guy or guy with brown uh, shirt or whatever it is. What the constable on the beat had simply done is pick on an identifying factor and black was easy to pick out. Now, I'm not defending any of that, but it did create a very considerable tension in the local communities between the police and the black community. But if we move on to looking at the issue of race relations culturally, there's been a lot of discussion around decolonizing the curriculum and decolonizing the national identity as a whole, which involves reassessing our imperial past, taking down statues, reassessing their relevance to today. Do you support these movements to decolonize our culture? Well, if you were saying to me, do I want to rewrite history? I would say, well, I can't. What happened, happened. What was said, was said. What was done, was done. And um, if you say to me, do I approve of everything that Britain did? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, but I have the advantage of living 100, 200 years later when the world is a very different place and the assumptions with which the world is governed are very different. Um, do I think that you can improve the situation 100 years, 200 years ago by uh, trying to write it differently in the history books? I don't believe you can make any change at all of that sort. Uh, and I am concerned that the, the process you're talking about can so easily become um, the whim of a small group of people in a community who decide that they're going to take against a particular historic figure. Um, if there is a case against the historic figure, I'm perfectly prepared to see it explored legitimately and within the law by the appropriate forces, uh, authorities. But what I'm not prepared to countenance is sort of a mob rule making up its own mind that I won't do. And the other point, that can I just make one other point? Uh, my own view of the empire, uh, of the performance of the 18th and 19th centuries, uh, is that uh, it was a clash between the European peoples, the Dutch, French, Italian, Spanish, uh, to some extent the Germans and the Brits, fought it out on the high seas. Um, part of the great trading uh, explosion of the Industrial Revolution, which had a military dimension associated with it and an imperial dimension. Um, it's simply that this country came out top and created an empire on a scale without precedence. Um, uh, my own guess is that if you want to pass judgment on that period, you look at the Commonwealth, and the Commonwealth is the most extraordinary tribute to British imperial governance, that all those countries want to remain within the Commonwealth. And that says something about the democracy that uh, uh, Britain spread across the world, to the, the, the official administrative systems that Britain created, and to the huge uh, 
positive legacies that were associated with our period as an imperial power. Did we do it all right? No, of course we didn't. Nobody ever does. But on balance, to have created the Commonwealth out of an empire is an historic achievement of dramatic significance. I think it must be pointed out that the people calling for a decolonization of our curriculum and a reassessment of statues are not asking for, um, are not asking to rewrite history, as you mentioned. They're asking more for a balanced and frank conversation about the past and how that past influences today. Well, I don't see how, who is stopping that. I think when you look at the education what, system... What I've just is completely compatible with exactly what you've asked. So you, don't, you don't think that this country glossifies its, its imperial history? No, I don't think so. I think we know that there were bad things, but on balance, it has, uh, Britain stands in uh, uh, a very favourable light compared with everybody else. I mean, we were amongst the first to get rid of the slave trade. Slave trade was abhorrent, but it was Britain here, one of the first countries to legislate against that practice. But I think many people could argue that if you look at the Brexit debate, if you look at the rise of the far right and this nationalistic atmosphere that's gained uh, energy in Britain, a lot of people would say that that's because of this imperial nostalgia that a lot of people have. What would you say to that? Well, I would say that uh, the sort of things you've described are to be found equally and probably more in countries without an imperial past. Now, I'll move on to talking about the Labour Party. You're very critical of Jeremy Corbyn and you said uh, on air that you did not believe he would become Prime Minister. Well, as we can see, you were right. Now that the Labour Party is being led by Keir Starmer, do you think that the party is posing a real challenge to the Conservative government. Yes. He has begun to restore the fortunes of the Labour Party, and that will undoubtedly create a pressure on the Conservative government. That's not a very profound set of statements. That is a blindingly obvious statement of the facts. Now, where do your allegiances with the Conservative Party lie? Because you have been a staunch critic of the um, Brexit debate, uh, uh, the um, Leave campaign. You've been very critical of Boris Johnson. You were critical of Theresa May. Where do you stand with your allegiances? Well, show me someone with uh, my record in public life who has done more to help the Conservative cause, to argue the Conservative philosophy, to explore and extend privatization to stimulate the competitiveness that is essential within a capitalist economy. And someone who has argued more uh, effectively for the strength of the British defense endeavor within the NATO alliance. Show me someone who's done more than I have. 
So is the Conservative Party a party you would serve under proudly today? If... Uh, what I wouldn't do is support a Conservative government's policy on Brexit. But in that, I join every Conservative Prime Minister that I worked for who all would have, in my view, been appalled by the mistake of Brexit, including Mrs. May, actually, in the run-up to the referendum campaign. Now, what do you think the future for the Conservative Party is? Because at the moment, I think it has garnered itself this reputation of being the nasty party still when you see a scandal like we mentioned earlier with the Windrush scandal, when we see the rhetoric that occurred during the Brexit debate, and also when you look at the way that the poorest in society had been dealt with. I think that you need to study the opinion polls, which will show you that the Conservatives are significantly ahead of the Labour Party. Uh, and in all the circumstances of the economic and uh, medical problems of COVID are really quite highly rated in the opinion polls. So I'm afraid your analysis uh, doesn't stand up to any scrutiny of the facts. What would your advice be to the Conservative government today in steering the challenges that they face? Oh, without slightest doubt, pursue the policy of devolution that David Cameron and George Osborne and Greg Clark pioneered. Uh, give to England the same sort of uh, bottoms-up energy-creating initiative that you've now given to Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. Realise that London is important, but so are the other great uh, conurbations uh, that made this country. London played a dramatic role, but so did Liverpool, Manchester, Leeds, uh, uh, Birmingham, Bristol, Plymouth. Southampton, uh, we need to regalvanize the power of the regions of this country, of the great economic centers of this country. And that the government is failing to do. Lord Hesseltine, thank you for joining me on Telefriend. Thanks very much. I enjoyed the conversation. Mm -hmm.